Will you all please stand for the reading of God's word? Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You could be seated. Let's pray. As we pray this morning, I'm just going to ask that um, this wouldn't be merely a time of me, me praying for us, me actively praying for you, and you being passive in the sense of just receiving this prayer, but I ask that this would also be a time where you would just actively pray along with me as I'm praying for you um, as, as well. We're going to be touching on just a really good topic today. It flows right off of what we were listening to last week in regard to the, the topic, the teaching of sanctification. Paul is going to narrow this thought down to a specific exhortation that he's going to push into the laps of the Philippians. And so as I'm praying about this, I'm praying in this way for us, I just ask that you would also be praying for me, that it would be the Holy Spirit that you hear this morning. It wouldn't just be merely me speaking words, but that also you would be active in praying for your brothers and sisters who will be hearing these same things as well. You can do an active part in helping your brothers and sisters hear the words of Christ during this time of prayer as you pray in this way. So please partner with me as we pray, and then we'll turn our attention to Philippians 2, verses 14 through 18. Father, we are here to worship you, and our great desire is to hear from your word today. The longing of our heart is to live as your children free from blame. To walk as children of God without blemish. So Father, help us to hold fast to the word of life. Our lifeblood is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we cling to this good news, the very ballast of our souls. Spirit, lead us this morning. Holy Spirit, guide us. Guide my brothers and my sisters in Christ as we hear the words of Jesus proclaimed from Philippians chapter 2. Father, I pray that you would help us to shine as lights in the world so that this crooked and twisted generation will see our good works and give glory to the Father. Keep us from prideful deception by causing us to abide in the truth. Keep us from harm by helping us to walk in the power of the Spirit. Grant us to know that we truly live only when we live to you. Father, you are gracious. Would you come and abide with us this morning? Would you turn your words from the Scriptures into arrows? And would you pierce our self-reliant ways and lead us to a full understanding of Christ-reliance? This is what we desire, this is what we long for, and this is what we need from you. And I pray these things for my brothers and sisters, I pray these things for myself, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. 
Well, our big theme for the book of Philippians is we've been marching through from chapter 1, verse 1, up until today in this mid part of Philippians chapter 2 is this idea of citizenship. We've been pressing before you that Paul has been calling the Philippians to live out their heavenly citizenship. They truly are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that when you turn the pages of Philippians, what you see is a very practical guidebook. What he's putting before the Philippian believers is this. There is a way in which believers of Jesus Christ are to conduct their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. We've seen this very emphatically put before the Philippian believers when we got back to verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1. And what Paul's been doing is from that emphatic exhortation to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, what he's been doing is he's just been using like a funnel, using that big exhortation. And what he's been doing is he's been narrowing it down, narrowing it down, narrowing it down, addressing and talking and speaking into key specific areas of the lives where the Philippians were living in such a way where their conduct wasn't necessarily becoming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what he's doing is he's calling these heavenly citizens to conduct themselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. And then Paul, we saw last week, exhorts that right gospel conduct looks like obedience to the Father. He puts forward Jesus, and he says, if you want to be humble, to live in humility, which is the avenue of unity, what you need to do is look to Jesus. Jesus was the supreme model of humility. He does the same thing with obedience. If you want to see what it looks like for a person to be the supreme example of obedience to the Father, you cast your gaze upon Jesus. And then he narrows it down even further. In verse 12, he starts talking about more specifically, obedience to the Father looks like this. You are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work. And we notice that it was for God's good pleasure that he's doing this. And then today, what he's going to do is he's going to take that and just like a funnel gets more narrow and more narrow and more narrow, so Paul comes to the very tail end of this big emphatic exhortation. If you want to know what it looks like to conduct your manner of life in a, to conduct your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, you do this. You do all things without grumbling or disputing. So what Paul is putting before these brothers and sisters in Philippi is this. Here is a way that you can work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You are to be marked as a gospel people. And as gospel people live out their lives, their actions are like this. They do all things without grumbling or questioning. Without grumbling or arguing. Without murmuring or complaining. So what Paul is doing and here in these, these verses, verses 14 through 18... As he's pressing home this idea, heavenly citizens are to live as God's blameless children. Heavenly citizens are to live as God's blameless children. And they live as God's blameless children by doing all things without grumbling or disputing. 
He puts before them, live as God's blameless children. And our text splits in two. And what we're going to see in verses 14 through the first part of verse 16, Paul is going to challenge them to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then he's going to come right on the heels of this exhortation, and he's going to make a very personal appeal to do these things with gladness and with joy. Live as God's blameless children. This is what it looks like for believers to live out what is true of them. They are children of God without blemish. And the way they do this is without grumbling or disputing. So let's look at verses 14 to that first part of 16. Paul says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You do this by holding fast to the word of life. So as his last push for conduct that is worthy of the gospel, Paul is turning and exhorts the Philippian believers to do all things without grumbling or disputing. And as the Philippians work out their salvation with fear and trembling, they are to avoid murmuring, they are to avoid arguing, and everything that goes with this kind of heart attitude, this kind of behavior. Instead, they are to live as God's blameless children so that through their actions, they would shine as lights in the midst of a dark generation. The Philippians were to be a people who were set apart. They were to be a sanctified people. When we looked at verses 12 and verses 13, there was something that was, he was talking about sanctification, but as he was talking about sanctification here, what there was something going on was it was noticeably personal. When you look at the language that Paul was using in regard to sanctification, what he's doing is almost like you can imagine him sitting down and pulling up a chair across from you and looking at you right in the face. And what he says is, you, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You are to be marked in this way. You are to be the one who's putting forth this gospel-driven, this spirit-led effort. But you need to know that it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. There is something incredibly personal about this challenge of holy living, about sanctification, being set apart for the name of Jesus. But when you turn and look with your eyes at verses 14 through 18, upon the heels of the very personal aspect of the call to sanctification, he rolls into something that is noticeably corporate. Our obedience to the Father in working out our salvation is to have an effect on the unbelieving world in which we live. See, this idea of sanctification is this. It is the continuing change in us, worked by God, freeing us from sinful habits and forming in us Christ-like thoughts and actions. So as you individually are working out 12 and 13, as you individually are working out 12 and 13, as you individually are working out 12 and 13, as I am working out 12 and 13, all of us as these individual parts where what we're doing is realizing that God is bringing to completion our salvation in that future day and the means by which he's going to bring that good work to an end is through us. working out our salvation when all of these individual parts here in Delta Church are doing this in an individual way, all of these aggregate parts come together and they create this corporate proclamation. 
where Paul is saying, going to say and argue here in a little bit that when you live out your lives in a blameless and innocent manner, when you are children of God because that's who we truly are and we live without blemish in regard to doing all things without grumbling or disputing, there will be an effect around those among whom you live. You will shine as lights in the world. Sanctification Yes, is personal, but sanctification has a noticeably corporate effect. And as Paul takes that noticeably personal nature of sanctification, what he's going to do, like that big funnel, he's going to funnel all the way down to a specific point that was taking place in the Philippian believers' lives, and it was this. Apparently, they were marked as a people who grumbled and disputed. They were marked by grumbling and arguing. And Paul's going to turn in verse 14, and he's going to tell them that you are to do all things without grumbling or disputing. See, Paul has just got done calling the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And upon the heels of this exhortation, he specifies the sins that have apparently been troubling this body of believers. Now, when you read verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning, it has very strong echoes from the Old Testament. If you've been reading through the Old Testament, if you've been working through, if you do a read through your Bible in a year, it wasn't too long ago that you would have been working through books like the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, the book of Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy. And there is a refrain that just sort of has an ebb and flow through these books, the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. There is this constant refrain where Moses, as he's recounting the history of God's people, is constantly identifying the nation of Israel as a people who grumbled against the Lord. They are grumbling against each other. They are grumbling against their leadership. And Moses and Aaron were on the brunt of this constantly. When you read Exodus 16, the nation of Israel just crossed the Red Sea and they're in the wilderness in Hungary and they're grumbling against Moses and Aaron. They're saying, man, I wish we were back in Egypt. At least we had pots of meat. At least we had bread. At least we had homes. And Moses and Aaron say, listen, who are we? When you grumble against us, the buck doesn't stop here. When you grumble against us, Moses actually says, you are actually grumbling against the Lord. The Israelites conclude in Exodus 16 that it is better to be in Egypt. When you jump to Numbers 11, the Israelites are grumbling about their misfortunes. They had a strong craving for meat, that verse says. Again, their grumbling is actually against the Lord. They are desired to be back in Egypt. And so they conclude it is better for us to be slaves in Egypt than it is to have freedom and life with God. It's not but three chapters later in Numbers 14. The people of Israel have just received the spies' report of the promised land. God said, listen, your life isn't just here wandering in the wilderness. There is a promised land. There's a land that I'm giving you. Take 12 spies, send them, go look, find, see, look, see where I'm sending you. What happens? The 12 spies come back. Ten of them give a negative report saying, yeah, there's great land flowing, milk and honey. Look how big the clusters of grapes are, but bad news, giants. The end of Numbers 13 says, we appeared as grasshoppers in their eyes. That's how how big the comparison was. And what does the people do? They freak out. They start grumbling. They receive the spies' report. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, man, God has given this. We need to press into this. This is the promise. God is leading us here. We need to go and take this. 
But the people choose to receive the ten bad reports, and the people grumble again against Moses and Aaron. They grumble against Joshua and Caleb, and the Israelites again conclude it's better to be in Egypt. There was a constant ebb and flow through the Old Testament where the nation of Israel, these children of God who are supposed to be representatives of the Father, are constantly saying, God, even though we have freedom with you, even though we're no longer slaves, we see what you have to offer. It doesn't measure up. We would rather be back in Israel. It's better to be slaves in Egypt than to be free with God. And apparently something similar was happening in Philippi. It's not by mistake that these echoes of grumbling and disputing nature of God's people found in the Old Testament, it's it's not by mistake that Paul was grabbing the echoes of these thoughts and applying them in Philippi. We don't know exactly the nature of what was the cause of their grumbling or disputing, but it was something similar. I mean, could it have been against Paul and his leaders? Possibly. That's the kind of grumbling that you saw from Old Testament Israel. Could it have been the Philippians were grumbling against their situation? Possibly. The Old Testament, Israel was constantly grumbling about their situation, their misfortunes. We don't have meat. We don't have water. It's hot. We're wandering around. Could it have been the people in Philippi were grumbling against one another? Could be the nation of Old Testament, Israel, was doing the same sort of thing. When Joshua and Caleb came back, there was grumbling and disputing between the ten spies who were saying, no, don't do it, and the two who were saying, do, do it. And then that, that spread as a plague into the people. We can't say for sure exactly. We can't pinpoint for sure what was going on but what we do know is this is that the philippians somewhere along the way became marked out as a people who were adopting a hard attitude that needed to be killed so paul presses before them listen brothers listen sisters do all things without grumbling or disputing why verse 15 look at that in your copy of scripture there we are to do these things so that you may be blameless and innocent Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The apostle's purpose in calling his friends to do all things without grumbling or disputing is so that no one would be able to lay any accusation or blame against them because they were pure and sincere. Unlike the wilderness generation of Moses' day, who had ceased to be God's children because of their blemish, their grumbling and their disputing, the apostle wants his readers, the Philippians, his friends, to be God's perfect children as they live and witness in the midst of the entire unbelieving world. These Christians, in a sense, have replaced Israel as God's people, and they are to shine in the world like, light, like stars that are lighting up the sky. See, as children of God, the Philippian believers were to be blameless and innocent. What does he mean by that? Because he's pressing that before them. Listen, do all these things. Do these things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless or innocent. What does he mean by that phrase? Blameless and innocent. It is this. They were to be free from accusation or blame. They were to conduct their lives in such a way to where if someone were to come against them to go, you're a Christian? I'm going to try to press the charge against you that you are a grumbler and you are a complainer. You are a disputer. And what Paul is saying is we are to be people who conduct our lives in such a way that if someone were to come and charge us, you are a grumbler. The charge would have to be dropped because we are truly innocent of that charge. 
They are truly children of God. And as such, they were to live without blemish. When you get to verse 15, Paul again is dipping back into the Old Testament. And when you come to Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, what Paul is doing is quoting verbatim Deuteronomy 32, verse 5. Deuteronomy 32, 5 is a psalm of Moses towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy. His time is done. His days are over. He's heading up to the mountains. He's going to be able to lay eyes on the promised land. Then he's dying and he's not going to go in. And he gives this grand psalm, this great song of praise to God where those first four verses of this psalm in Deuteronomy 32 are Moses saying things like this. God is awesome. God is worthy. God's the king. He's for us. He's not against us. We are to worship him. We're to follow him. We're to be obedient to him. And then he turns his eyes away from Yahweh, away from the Lord God, the great I am. And he casts his gaze onto the people. And then he says basically this thing. You people who are the nation of Israel were to be a beacon to the nations. You were to be a light to the nations. Yet you were children of God who lived with blemish. Why? Because you were constantly grumbling and complaining against the Lord. You weren't shining like a light in the dark place because of the way you were constantly going, God, not your way, our way. God, don't like what you're doing here. God, do something else. And they were do, in, in the midst of them doing this, they were acting like not a lighthouse, but they were acting like the darkness that was around them. And Moses actually goes on to say that you people are now no longer to be seen as God's children because of the way you're living in this blemish. See, Israel was known as God's children. Sonship language is used of them. You can go read that in Exodus chapter 4 where God actually says, Israel is my son. God viewed Israel as his child. Israel, the nation of Israel, was to be known as God's children. And as such, they were to be blameless and innocent. They were to live in such a way where no one could come and say, I'm going to charge you that you are a grumbler. And the nation of Israel is supposed to have conducted their way in such a way where they could step back and go, that is a, that's a faulty charge. We're innocent of that accusation. But instead, they were blemished by grumbling and disputing. They were to be set apart. They were to be sanctified. That's what the whole book of Leviticus is about. Right? When you're, when you're doing the read-through, your Bible in a year, I mean, Genesis, you're banging, right? Exodus, you're firing. Then you get to Leviticus, and it's like, it's like you're stuck, man. It's like, what in the world is he talking about around here? Like, do this, don't do that. Don't wear poly, poly cotton fiber blends. Don't eat fish. Don't have, I mean, it's like, what in the world is he talking about? It's not a mistake that we call the book of Leviticus the holiness code. That's a shorthand phrase for that. Why? Because this is God's way saying for you to fulfill what should be true of you, that you are the children of God, the way you stand out like a lighthouse, the way you stand out as a beacon to the nations is when you don't do what the nations do. How do you do this? You are to be set apart in this way. You are to be holy in this way. You are to be sanctified in this way, shining out as a beacon of light to the nations, yet they failed. Paul turns on this, grabs that thought from Deuteronomy 32, verse 5, and applies it right into Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, and calls the Philippians to not follow their example. His desire is that they live out their identity as God's children without blemish. See, listen, Christians are now the true children of God. This language is all over the New Testament. 
We are children of God by faith. We are children of God by adoption. We are children of God by spiritual birth. And because the Philippians are God's children, they should be imitators of God. Advancing in the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. The process includes putting to death the sin of grumbling and disputing in their lives. And all of this is so as they are doing these things, as they were working out their salvation, as they are rooting this gospel-driven, spirit-led effort, rooted in the grace that has come from Jesus Christ himself, from Christ who has planted them in the family of God, they are to do this certain thing. Do not grumble. Do not dispute. Put the heart attitudes that lead to these actions to death so that this effect will come about, that you will shine as lights in the world. When children of God live without blemish, Above reproach and innocent of charge, doing all things without grumbling or disputing, their actions will shine in the midst of a dark world. See, Paul's not saying anything new here. Paul is glancing backward. Paul is reaching back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was saying these same things. He's pressing the same truths onto his disciples. Paul is taking the same truth that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, and he's pressing it onto the Philippian believers. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But what do people do when they light a lamp? They light a lamp and they, they plant that thing on a stand. And the house that was formerly dark is no longer dark. Why? Because you turned a light on, you planted it on a stand, and as you plant that light on a stand, it invades the darkness. Jesus says this, in the same way, you are to let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus was the originator of the idea that Paul is pressing on to the Philippians. Because the gospel has been applied to your heart, because the gospel has saved you, because you have run and fled to Christ for salvation, there is a beacon of light buried within you that is rooted in the good news of Jesus Christ, and you are to let that truth so guide the way you think, so guide the way you act, so guide the way you talk, so guide the way the things you see, so that you will live markedly different lives. And as you are doing this, Jesus says, your good works will shine and in a way somehow God takes these good works and they will lead to this unbelieving world who's living in darkness giving glory to the father who is in heaven Paul says how do you do this and that's where you get to that part of first part of verse 16 if we're to do all things without grumbling or questioning living lives as children of God without blemish, being innocent of charge above reproach so that we'll shine as lights in the world, how does this come about? It comes about, verse 16, that first part there, by holding fast to the word of life. See, obedient Christians will have an extraordinary impact on the world around them when they couple right living, 
do all things without grumbling or complaining. This is Paul saying there is a way that you are to live that is right, which necessarily implies that there is possibility for you to live in such a way that is wrong. And he doesn't want them to do that. He's pressing on to them and before them as obedient Christians who will conduct their lives in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, not rooted in you doing good works to somehow achieve favor from the Father, but you doing good works because you are rooted, buried deep into the grace of Jesus Christ. There is a right way to live. And when Christians couple right living, do all things without grumbling or disputing, with right gospel proclamation, holding fast to the word of life, it will preach a message to the unbelieving world. See, the quality of a believer's life is the platform of his testimony. You have to understand this. The quality of a believer's life is the platform of his testimony. Just as right doctrine without right character is hypocritical and ineffective. Listen, have you ever met somebody who knows a lot, like they're a walking, systematic theologian, but the guy is just like a moral jerk? Like, his actions, his character, completely negate anything that he might know up here, right? So just as right doctrine without right character is hypocritical and ineffective, so also... Right living is ineffective if believers do not proclaim the gospel. See, the other side of it is this, that you like, you know, I'm, I'm for hyperbole here, you live a morally impeccable life in every way possible. And somehow you imbibe this thought that if I just live a morally impeccable lifestyle where I'm living in such a way where nobody can lay any charge of blame against me, but you never open your mouth proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus, Paul says that's a no-go. The way that the Philippians will shine as lights in the world is by doing all things without grumbling or disputing and holding out, holding forth, putting forth the word of life, which is just code for the gospel. So the world will see by your good actions, not grumbling or disputing, and you opening your mouth so that when you live in such a way, and the people go, man, what in the world's going on with you? Like, this is the time to grumble and dispute. You don't just stand back and go, that's right. Not grumbling or disputing. No, you say, that's, that's right, because the gospel's been applied to me. Jesus Christ has saved me. Your testimony rides on you mimicking Jesus, imaging Jesus with your actions so that when you stand out as markedly different, then you take that opportunity to open your mouth, hold forth the words of the gospel, and people hear and receive. And so when you start talking about Jesus, the testimony of your life doesn't negate what you're saying. Listen, I've been around these people. I'm sure you have too. The guy who's on fire, he's lit a flame for Jesus, but the guy's a complete bum. He's lazy at work. The guy that everyone knows is the one who's always cutting corners, who's always out for himself, who's always grumbling and complaining. Then God grants an opportunity quite despite this guy's self, and he comes in and he preaches the gospel, says something about the good news, and what do they do? They look at him and they scoff. Why? Partly because it's the gospel being proclaimed, but partly because this guy's a good jerk. Everyone knows he's lazy. Everyone knows he cuts corners. Everyone knows he grumbles. Everyone knows he complains. 
His testimony of his life is negating the proclamation of his words. And Paul is saying we're not to have either or, but what we're to have is both and. The Philippians were to hold forth the word of life riding on the platform of their lives, not being marked by grumbling or disputing. Paul presses forward these two truths. You are to do all things by holding out. You are to do these things without grumbling or questioning by holding forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if the Philippians were to live in this way, then on that future day of Christ, when Paul stands before Jesus as a pastor, just like I'll have to stand before Jesus because I'm a pastor, just as Tom, just as Brian, just as John, just as Charles, Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 5, is that one day I'm going to stand before Jesus, and Jesus is going to go, how did you, how did you lead my flock? How did you lead these members? How did you lead her, and how did you lead him, and how did you lead these children, and how did you, how did you, how did you, how did you, and I'm going to have to stand before Jesus and give an account. Well, Christ, I, I was leading like this, and I was doing these things. What Paul is doing is pressing before his brothers and sisters, listen, There is a personal appeal to joy. What Paul is doing is saying, I'm desiring this for you. And this is what he says in the last part of verse 16. I'm desiring these for you. I want you to live without grumbling or disputing. I want you to be children of God without blemish. I want you to be blameless and innocent so you'll shine as lights in the world by holding holding fast to the word of life. Why? So that, the last part of verse 16, so that in that day of Christ, in that future day, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, on the surface, that sounds pretty selfish. Sounds like Paul's saying, listen, I want, to be, I want to be happy before Jesus, so do some stuff, why don't you? It's like, ooh, so I'm supposed to like put sin to death because it's going to make you happy, Paul? Like, what's, like, uh, but that's not what he's saying, right? And we've been saying this over and over again. Paul has been pressing before them this emphatic exhortation of let the conduct of your life be worthy of the gospel. That's not rooted in make Paul happy. That's rooted in because you're in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. He's saying that phrase over and over again. Because that's true, you're to conduct your life in this way. And Paul says, when you do this, I will be proud. I will receive joy. See, Paul's great desire is that his apostolic efforts on behalf of the Philippians will have been entirely fruitful and that he will not stand before the judge on that final day with empty hands. Paul wished to present the Philippian Christians as part of the account of his stewardship of the gospel. Paul had been given a great gift. He was the what? The apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul is simply saying, listen, on the day that I'm going to stand before Jesus and I'm going to have to give an account of all these things that God allowed me to be a steward of, a trustee of, what I want to do is be able to in turn go back to Jesus and go, look, Jesus, I didn't run in vain. I didn't labor in vain. See, Paul is a pastor we forget that sometimes. We read Paul and go, man, like, Paul's like varsity, right? Like the only one on the varsity team. If there's like a varsity team Jesus, that's like Paul, and he's playing like all five positions on the basketball court, right? He's passing to himself. He's alley-ooping himself as he's dunking himself, you know, that kind of thing. We, we tend to think Paul in that way. But Paul's just like you and me. Paul struggled with sin. Go read Romans 6 and 7. Paul suffered for the gospel. Read the book of Acts read his letters. But what Paul is doing is saying, man, I'm a pastor. I'm just like you. I'm going to have to stand before Jesus. I'm going to have to give an account for for this gift that was given to me, this gospel stewardship. And Paul's evidence, what he's saying to the Philippians is this, that the evidence that I'm going to be able to put before Jesus that I had run the race well 
is that you guys lived your life in a manner that was worthy of the gospel. Gospel action in our lives proves that the gospel has truly been applied to our hearts. And so Paul's basically setting this total package before the evidence that what I preached to you back in Acts chapter 16 and was received by you in Acts chapter 16 will show its fruit and evidence in this manner of holy living. They weren't to do all things without grumbling or disputing to just make Paul proud. They were to conduct their lives in this way because of the grace that had been extended to them. And then verse 17 and 18, he just basically turns and he says that exact same thing, but just with a different illustration. He basically looks at the Philippians and he says, this sacrificial offering of your faith, the sacrificial service of you partnering with me in the gospel, that is just an offering. It's an offering that God is pleased with and he's accepted. And then he uses another phrase, if my am to be poured out as a drink offering upon your sacrificial service for the gospel, then that's okay. And he's basically what he's talking about is his death. If I need to die, because remember, he's in prison. He thinks he's getting out. He's not sure. He thinks he is, but maybe not. And he's just sort of there in that tension. He's like saying, listen, if this ends up going bad and I end up dying for the sake of the gospel, I'm going to be glad. Verse 17, I'm glad. I rejoice. It's not to my loss, to die because of my gospel proclamation to you and the way you partnered with me in the gospel. It's not to my ill. It's not to my loss. It's actually to my gain. And that's what he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why Paul can say these things. It is joy for him. It is gladness for him. And basically what he does is he ends this section of emphatic exhortation saying, listen, partner with me in my joy. Partner with me in my gladness. Partner with me as I am thinking in this way and viewing things in this way. So where do we go from here? How do we respond to this? We've been looking at this section now for, what, four, four weeks now, maybe five, as we're just working our way through the book of Philippians. I think we can respond in, in this way. There's two at least distinct ways, one way for believers and one way for, for unbelievers. We'll concentrate heavy on the way where believers can respond. See, heavenly citizens are to live as God's blameless children. Heavenly citizens are to live as God's blameless children, doing all things without grumbling or disputing. See, grumbling and disputing are serious sins. Like, right? We, we, tend, we tend to think in categories like, right? I, I shouldn't commit adultery. Serious sin. Probably shouldn't murder somebody. Serious sin. But if you're in the drive through of fast food, and you don't get your fast food fast enough, and you grumble and complain, that's just as serious in the eyes of God as adultery, as lust, as murder. Grumbling and disputing are serious, serious sins. The thoughts and actions of a grumbling heart do not take place in a vacuum. In reality, the thoughts and actions of a grumbling heart are directly against God. Whether it is complaining against your situation in life, whether it's grumbling because of leadership or those who are over you or in charge of you, or whether it's murmuring against one another, every complaint a believer makes is against the Lord God himself. I love this quote. MacArthur says this, A believer's failure to willingly, even joyfully submit to God's providential will is a deep-seated and serious sin. 
discontentment and complaining are attitudes that can become so habitual that they are hardly noticed. But those twin sins demonstrate a lack of trust in his providential will, boundless grace, infinite wisdom and love. Every circumstance of life is to be accepted willingly and joyfully without murmuring, complaint, or disappointment, much less resentment. There is no exception. There is no exception. There is no exception where you could ever walk up to me or walk in front of God and say, God, I have the right in this moment to grumble and dispute. There is no exception. There should never be grumbling or disputing. It is always, 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 always sinful for believers to complain about anything the Lord calls them to do or about any circumstance which he sovereignly allows, whether the task is difficult or easy, whether the situation involves a blessing or a trial, negative attitudes are forbidden. Listen, when you come to life with grumbling or disputing, at the center of your heart, what you're saying is this, God is not God. God is not God. If God is truly God and he's omnipotent and he knows all things and he rules and reigns so that everything will come back to him for his good name and for his good pleasure and when something happens to you in life and you look at that situation and go, God, I disagree with the way you're orchestrating my life. I'm going to choose in this moment to grumble and dispute you on the way you are leading my life in that moment, whether you know it or not, explicitly or implicitly will say it if you enter into a conversation with somebody, what you're doing is saying, the center of gravity in my life is not God. The center of gravity in my life is me. And it is you in that moment of grumbling. The symptom is grumbling, but the root is this. It's you trying to lay hold of Godhood. Because it's you saying, God, you're sovereign. You orchestrate my days, but you suck at it. So I'm going to rise up, grumble, and say, your way goes down. My way goes forward. Grumbling and disputing in its essence is you striving to be like God. The heart of grumbling and disputing flows from a self-centered world. It's the me world. It's the navel-gazing world. You believe yourself to be the center of gravity and everything orbits around you. And in this world that you've constructed for yourself, the moment that something does not go according to your plan in a way that you desire, giving you the right recognition as the center of all things, you immediately slip into the mode of grumbling. See, grumbling is the negative response to something unpleasant, inconvenient, or disappointing arising from a self-centered notion that it is undeserved. Disputing has the more specific idea of questioning, doubting, or disputing the truth of a matter. See, grumbling is never surface level. I mean, we can raise all kinds of different levels and thoughts, right? I mean, we can consider grumbling about big things. Like, I didn't get that job promotion, That's a big deal. Why did he get it? To something as nitpicky as, why doesn't that guy just get out of the left-hand lane on the interstate? Doesn't he know I'm traveling behind him? Right? I mean, we laugh at that, but like, what's the difference? The symptom of one is 
he obviously doesn't recognize I'm the center of his world. To the other one of, this person obviously doesn't recognize I'm the best thing in this world that I've ever been offered. That's why I should have gotten the job. When you boil it back down, what is that? It's you saying, I'm the best thing going. How dare you affront what I believe to be true and what I know to be true? See, grumbling is never surface level. It's never just merely, oh, well, just grumbled again today. No big deal. No, it's a deep-seated wrong. It is a sin. It's an affront to God. There is always something deeper. There is always something rooted down in the heart. See, grumbling is only the symptom. Complaining is only the symptom. Murmuring is only the the symptom. Arguing, disputing is only the symptom. But the cause is always something else. It could be pride. Pride leading to grumbling. I deserve different circumstances. I, I deserve this house, this raise, this job. I deserve to be in a relationship. I deserve a better spouse. I deserve obedient children. I deserve faster lines at the grocery. I deserve not to get stuck in traffic. I deserve faster food at the fast food restaurant. Pride says I deserve different circumstances because I am the center of the world. And when that doesn't happen, what you deserve, grumbling comes forward. The cause could be selfishness, thinking of yourself more highly than others. I don't think it's a mistake that Paul just addressed that issue back at the beginning of chapter 2. Selfishness says, I'm more important than you are. So the moment you don't do something to me to recognize how much higher, how much better I am than you, we go toward grumbling. Hey, he has no right to treat me this way. How dare you treat me this way? That's selfishness. That's you thinking more highly of yourself than you are to think of others. Another cause could be comfort. You are, someone comes along and is forcing you out of your comfort zone. So you say, I don't like that. So I don't, I'm going to, I don't like the way you're challenging me to do something that makes me uncomfortable. So you grumble about it. It can be the cause of control. I'm not in control. I, don't, I feel like I don't have a grip on this. I can't orchestrate all the things perfectly with all my ducks in a row like I would like to have them. So I'm going to grumble about this situation. It can be the cause of acceptance. This will cause me to not be liked, so I'm going to grumble. It can be the cause of power. This is below me. I want to be the star. You're asking me to vacuum the floor? Don't you know what kind of job I have? And so we grumble when someone comes and says, Brother, can you serve by doing this menial task? (sighs) How dare you ask me to do that? Don't don't you realize who I am? See, grumbling is never surface level. It's always something deeper. Now, when I was writing these things, my operating assumption right now is I'm not the only one going, eww. Because when I was writing these things, I was looking into a mirror, and the reflection that was coming back was this face right here you're looking at. The one that usually gets me is this idea of pride. Basically, if you boil it all down, pride is like the mother of all sins, right? Pride gives birth basically to everything else. Because <laughs> what is pride? Pride is basically saying, I'm God, God's not God, why don't you guys do what I say, basically. And so that most often works itself out with my children Whenever it's just like, man, child, for the 20th time, I just told you to do something. Why can't you figure this out? Why can't you? Why can't you? Why can't you? Why can't you? Now, on the surface, that seems seemingly 
seemingly benign. Like, right, that, that seems like, okay, yeah, you're just frustrated, but what's going on there? It's me looking at my child going, don't you realize how important I am? Don't you realize how I'm the center of me and me and I and me and you and me? And if you don't, only just do it, me and I and me and me and I. So what's our hope in all this? What is our hope in doing all things without grumbling or complaining? And I think it is this. It's so simple, yet so powerful. Our hope is this. The weapon that kills the cause of grumbling, pride, selfishness, comfort, control, acceptance, or power, the weapon that kills the cause of grumbling and rightly puts to death self-centered thinking is embracing that our sovereign, all-knowing God is working in you for his good pleasure. I'm serious. It's, it's, it's as simple as that. Like, wow, that was a bit of a letdown. But it's as simple as that. Because the cause of grumbling is this. I'm at the center of my orbit. Gravity floats around me. I hold all things in place. And the moment that you do not get what you think you deserve, immediately grumbling rises up. But when you, in that situation, withdraw yourself from the center of gravity and you put the sovereign king, you put the holy Lord, when you put our creator and our king who rules and controls and reigns over all things, who knows all things, and for those who are in Christ Jesus, he has good only in store for them. When you put that at the center of gravity and when you are just a speck, a molecule floating around the orbit of the sovereign God who's doing all things for his good and his pleasure, the theology of our God being sovereign and being good for you means this. When something comes your way that you can handle, you go, good, God is orchestrating this. When you're staring down the pipe of something going, I thought I was going to get that promotion. Why why didn't that happen? What you don't do is rise up and grumble, but you trust and relax. And you go, yes, God is good. This isn't off God's radar. When your child for like the 50th time that day is just not getting it, you can, with Christ, not rise up and go, why don't you get how important what I'm saying is? You can step back and go, God is teaching me something in this. This 50th time I'm giving this form of instruction to my child doesn't need to lead me to grumbling and disputing. It doesn't need my heart to explode with murmuring and complaining. But I can somehow trust and rest that the sovereign God is doing something here for his good pleasure. See, a full-on embrace of God's goodness for those who are his children sustains the soul in the midst of unpleasant, inconvenient, disappointing circumstances. See, I have seen this played out, like with my eyes. I've walked with people. I've seen this play itself out. I have seen do all things without grumbling and disputing lived out. And in each case, I've seen this happen. The common denominator has been a deep, unshakable, steadfast resolve in the goodness of God's sovereignty. We have some friends, Eric and Amy Ostrander. I wish I, I, wish I could just bring them up here and let them tell your story. They were called to adopt internationally from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Felt like they were called to adopt two boys, so they entered into that adoption process. Hard. It's a country that's just a lot of corruption in the system. And as they get two boys appointed to them, excited beyond all get out, start to experience trouble within the adoption agency. In the midst of that experience of adopting these first two boys, she ends up getting 
and the collapsed lung has to go into the hospital. They're making a visit to go over and see these boys. Her husband has to leave, and so it's just tearing him up. They fix it with some surgery, only later for her lung to collapse again and to do more surgery, only to find out that the first of their two boys they're trying to adopt dies because of, because of neglect overseas, which is heart-crushing enough, only to learn soon later upon the hills of that the second boy they're trying to adopt dies because of neglect. So the two boys have been walking with in the midst of a collapsed lung and surgery and collapsed lung and surgery and spending money and traveling over and all these things, I did not hear from them once come about with grumbling or disputing, but that's not the end. So they enter into the process again and saying, God has still called us. We're still going forward with this. And our desire is to strive forward and adopt two boys from the DRC. And so they go forward and do it. They get two boys appointed to them, only to find out, again, the first time that their boy gets appointed to them, they find out that the boy was actually kidnapped and he's not even theirs. And the person that they've been trying to adopt this whole time is actually finds out he is not adoptable. Only to find out that the agency was really corrupt and they're not giving them the money back. And we're talking multiple tens of thousands of dollars they're not going to get back. And then the whole time, in the midst of all of this, the gospel, I mean, it was like it was pitch black in the room. And in the middle of that room, everywhere they went, the grace and the goodness and the favor of God rooted in the deep sovereignty that even in the midst of tears, even in the midst of late nights of praying and crying out to God, no one said this was easy. No one said this was going to be just High fives and puppy dogs. No one said this was going to be just a great, grand old time. But in the midst of all of this, the oozing out of them as the press of life was crushing in on them was the fragrant aroma of gospel gospel. God's good. They're sharing the gospel left and right. The name of Jesus is being magnified and proclaimed. And I tell you, they did all things without grumbling or questioning. And we're not talking about something easy. I look at them and go, God, I want that. Man, I want to live my life in such a way to be so anchored on the sovereign goodness of God that when life presses in, I look to God and I don't go, man, God, you're doing wrong. I look to God and say, God is good. God's good. God is good. God is good. And in this moment, his goodness is shining forward. And in this moment, I can be a beacon to the world around me, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ through my actions by not grumbling and by not disputing. The other person I've seen do this is the Apostle Paul. We don't have to go too far. Turn your head two inches to the left and you'll read Philippians chapter 1. What was Paul doing there? Yeah, I've been shipwrecked for the gospel. Stoned to death for the gospel. Three times, 40 lashes minus one for the gospel. In prison for the gospel. Gospel, gospel. And what does he say back there? I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. But in that astounding phrase, verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. See, the reason why Paul could say to the people in Philippi, do all things without grumbling or complaining, isn't because Paul just had some cheery disposition. Man, 40 lashes minus one, three times, yeah! I mean, Paul wasn't stepping... 
I mean, Paul was suffering for the gospel, and the reason why Paul could say, therefore, do all things without grumbling or questioning is because he was a man anchored on the sovereign goodness of his God, leading and guiding his days so he could operate in this manner and say, as I live this way, what he's going to say later is, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul could press this before the brothers and sisters, not because it is impossible to see come to fruition, but because there is hope in seeing us live out in this way. And ultimately, the last way is Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus, the supreme example. Again, I don't think it's by, by mistake that that great Christ hymn, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, lands where it does. Because what does Paul say? Listen, you need to be marked by humility. How do we live with humility? Turn to Jesus Look how he humbled himself. Look at the station he had. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. On the backside of that, what does he do? He says, we are to live in such a way that we live obedient lives, working out our salvation by doing all things without grumbling or questioning. Well, what's our hope there, Paul? He points backwards and says, look at Jesus. Humbled himself by being obedient, obedient to the point of death. Robust theology, again, becomes very practical for us. Jesus had the chance to grumble and complain if anyone did. Jesus did, right? Perfect Son of God, second member of the Trinity. All of Scripture says He's the one who created and sustaining the world. The reason why you're not just imploding into oblivion is because Jesus Christ is sustaining the very nuclei of the molecules that are in you. If anybody had reason to grumble or complain, it would be Jesus going, you want me to go and die for them? But it doesn't happen that way. In obedience, which would lead to his death, led to a joyful submission of the Father. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before it shears a silence, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is the supreme example of you for you, for me, of what it looks like to do all things without grumbling or complaining. I press on you the same thing that I pressed on you a couple weeks ago when we looked at 2, 1 through 11. As believers in Christ, for those of us who truly are children of God, how dare we grumble and complain? I mean, seriously, how dare we grumble and complain? How dare we operate with a heart that grumbles against God? I'm not saying that this will be easy. It will be hard. It will be two steps forward, one step back, two steps backward, one step forward. It will be like this until the day you die or Christ comes back. You are called to fight the remaining effects of indwelling sin. But listen, there is hope for change. Christ is the picture of true humanity. If you want to know what it truly means to be human, you look to Jesus. You look to Jesus. See, we're all abnormal in a sense. We came to this world fallen. Jesus is the only true human who ever lived out truly his humanity. And if Jesus in true humanity could do all things without grumbling or complaining, then this truth from Paul where he says we are being conformed into the image of the firstborn, this first true human, then you and I have hope. Jesus doesn't come and say, I was obedient. Sure hope you guys figured it out. You're never going to get there. But he says, no, it is it is possible because you are in Christ Jesus. You've been adopted in the family of God. You are children of God. And so God adopts you into the family, and then it's like he's saying, okay, children, me and you, look to the firstborn, Jesus. 
you want to know how to live, live like the firstborn. If you want to know how to think, think like the firstborn. If you want to know how to speak, speak like the firstborn. He is the true example of humanity. And we do that not looking at going, good grief, look how much better Jesus will never get there. But God comes along and gives the promise and goes, you're being conformed. You're growing. Strive, fight, work out your salvation. God's going to equip you. The Spirit will lead you. Fight, spirit leads, fight, spirit leads, fight, spirit leads, fight, spirit leads. And that becomes the pattern of life until the day you die or the day Christ comes. So let me just close with this. Another response that we could have is this. You might find yourself being a grumbler and a complainer, and the reason why you're a grumbler and a complainer is because you're not a believer in Jesus. That's a legitimate, that's a legitimate option. The reason why you go, man, that, like, that was just nailed me. Like, I was like looking into a mirror. I grumble and complain all the time. But if you are apart from Jesus, and the bad news I have for you is you have no hope of change because you don't have the spirit of the God living within you because you have not repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ. So the way that you respond is not going, God, help me to do all things like grumbling and complaining. What your response is, God, help me to see my sin to see you're a great Savior in Jesus Christ. Help me to believe and receive the good news of Jesus Christ. See, that's what's going on when we turn our attention to the communion table. See, on the night that Christ was betrayed and he was having a meal with the disciples, what he was doing when he had the bread, what he was doing when he had the cup was this. He was saying, just as, my, just as you guys are pouring the liquid of this cup out of the cup into your mouth, so my blood is going to be poured out of my body. Just as you are taking this bread and you're ripping off pieces and you hear that tearing and you hear that pulling and you see how that just is being shredded, that loaf of bread, my body is going to be torn. My body is going to be broken. My body is going to be mangled. And so when we come to the table here and we partake of communion, you are a believer. This is for you. If you've been born again, this is for you, and we want you to come and to partake of the elements here. This is a way that we can do these things in remembrance of the sacrifice of the Father is what he did for us. But if you're not a believer, we ask you to not come, to not partake of this. Because when we do this, we're remembering the sacrifice of Christ's blood being poured out and his body being broken for us, and you cannot partake of something that is not true of you if you're not a believer. The way that you respond in this moment is by coming back and having a conversation with me so we can talk about what salvation looks like. I'm going to pray for brothers and sisters who are going to come up, lead us in some songs, and then we'll close our service, all right? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you are the one who rules and has, has your way in our life. God, I pray that for my my brothers and sisters here, for, for myself, that we would truly be a people who do all things without grumbling or questioning. Not so that we can somehow attain favor from the Father, but so that we could image Jesus to a world who needs to see the image of Jesus. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would lead us and guide us to shine as lights in the midst of a dark world. Help us in our neighborhood. Help us in our families. Help us in our places of work. Help us in our relationships. Help us in our marriages. Help us with our children to be a gospel light shining witness, imaging Jesus no matter where we go. I pray these things in the name of Christ.